0: To Composing Myself, a special podcast series celebrating 50 years of great composers at Wise Music. Presented by Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Welcome to Composing Myself. Today, Dave and I are joined by Finnish composer Uti Tarjanen, who describes music as a force of nature that can flood over a person and even change entire destinies, which I think is a great place to start. Welcome, Uti. And where are you speaking to us today from?
1: Well, I'm in North Finland, uh, some 600 kilometers north from Helsinki. We
2: normally start these conversations, Uti, by um, asking you, what, what is your earliest memory of music affecting you? You heard a piece of music, it got in your head, and you just thought, that's amazing.
1: That's a really good question. Um, I must say that one of my earliest memories are uh, actually from my own premiere <laughs> when I was, uh, I was five or six, and I was performing one of the first songs I've ever composed uh, in my cousin's wedding. It was called like a dance of a elf or something like that. But, you know, the city where I was born and raised, Rovanemi, they had this Lapland Chamber Orchestra and mm. it must have been one of their concerts. It was the sound that I grew up with there. A
0: wonderful memory of a piece you wrote when you were six years old. So you've been composing for a wee while now, which is absolutely glorious. When you heard the piece that you'd first, you'd written for the first time, how did that make you feel? Did you think, Hey, I did that.
1: Well, I remember it was very important for me and it was a challenge because the the piano was kind of sliding away and I tried to keep, keep up with it, (laughs) some physical challenges. But I was really—it was really important. This musical language for me. I actually learned writing notes before I was writing words. Mm-hmm. Oh, did and you really? It, it was like a
0: mm.
1: way for like, like speaking. So, mm. so to say, for me. That—that is that's a, that's a very interesting
0: um situation to find yourself in to use musical language as a means of presumably communicating before you were using words were you communicating emotions in that language
1: yes i think so i would say i i was uh i've been told from from my parents that i i called it fantasizing and i could sit for like hours in front of piano and like play out my feelings somehow oh wow what a great
0: thing to be able to do!
2: Was it a musical family? Were, 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 were people in your family playing music as well around you?
1: Well, my parents were amateur musicians. My mum played the piano and dad played the guitar. Like some cousins of mine are, like violinists, for example, in this Lapland Chamber Orchestra, mm-hmm. but not not a professional music.
0: And you talk about, um, or I've read a lot about the the importance to you of your homeland and the inspiration that that brings to your creativity. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I'm always fascinated in that where there's a deep-rooted synergy to creativity and place. I'd love to know mm. more about that.
1: Yeah. Well, um, as a composer and as a person, I'm, you know, synesthetic. So, like, like uh, music appears as colours and especially as, like, colors of light for me. And, you know, in Lapland, in northernmost uh, Finland and northernmost Europe, like, the light, light is very different, like, than in England, for example, because, you know, the sun is, it can be, like, low near the horizon for, like, most of the day or most of the night during the summer. Mm. And it really, like... Paint the landscape with quite different colors that I, I haven't seen elsewhere. So that has been really, really big inspiration for me as a synesthetic person. Well, then I would say that uh, in Lapland and in Scandinavia, and often most uh, places of that, people still live rather close to the nature. You know, mm. I was raised up by uh, going in forests and picking berries and mushrooms and like getting to know with different plants and um, trees and it was kind of part of the way how I grew up and for example when I moved to Helsinki to study and especially when I was studying in London and the underground was really like a thing Mm. how you go from one place to another you know I was so lost when I came to the Ground and I had to like look up at where is the sun so that I could find out where are the where is north, where is south.
0: Yeah.
1: And then I could find my way again. But like that kind of things derived from childhood and like mm. going on there in nature. Absolutely. You know, they, they are desert, desert, like places where there's just 100 kilometers of woods that nobody has ever touched. Mm. Like some last places in Europe at least for that. Yeah. And and hopefully
0: they will remain untouched.
1: Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yes, yeah. many of them are protected.
0: I'm fascinated by synesthesia, really, you know, mm. having you know read about Messian and his synesthesia scriabin, etc. How does that affect the way you write music?
1: Well, I think it's the thing beneath it all the time I always think how dark or light music is and like uh-huh. how, how does it slide to a bit darker or lighter you know I wrote this opera called A Room of One's Own yeah which was premiered last year in Germany and uh, that was the first time when I knew from the very beginning that in this piece there's going to be light on this on the scene all the time and I was mm. thinking so much about that, like how the lighting will go, and and the music itself had like a lighting plan, like where it gets darker and where it shines, very mm. bright and all that. And I think it went rather, rather well together with the with the lights, like there at the premiere.
2: So you, you you seem to base, you know, it, it seems to inspire you to create music. Do you do you read generally?
1: Yes, I, I read quite much, but I have to say I read a lot less than like uh, four years ago. You know, last four years we got three boys. Actually, oh, wow. in three years we got three boys, but the youngest is now one year. I have had much less time to read. How old are they? Uh, they are four, three and one. Oh. So they really keep us busy yes. while i 'm not composing that, that, but that
2: is, the, the reading clearly is, is is useful information that inspires you but but also mm. I, am I right? I think you've written a number of pieces about giving birth and about you know the the, the absolute wonder
1: of creating life um, yes, that is true. Yeah. I would say that like the boys when I got, when I got first pregnant and then gave birth to this first, first child, like it kind of opened my instincts in a way that I couldn't have imagined, like could happen. And after that, I think that my instinctive uh, composer kind of was born as well. Like all of a sudden I was trusting like my instincts so much more and it carried me like very quickly to very new places. And um, actually, during these uh, three, four years, I've written like um, three orchestra works of like either giving birth or like how the woman body opens up in front of new life or closes after, after that. And the... That's what what this work is about too. There in London in like three weeks or what? Yeah. The Ring of Fire and love, mm-hmm. but then uh, this March uh, there will be world premiere of my English horn concerto Milky Ways, and that that's the mm-hmm. first work where I was inspired by this like connection that breastfeeding kind of builds between the newborn and the and the woman and you know like I learned that uh, Milky Way you have the Milky Way you know this space like our galaxy is called Milky Way but it's not like a coincidence because this word uh, comes from the uh, antique Greece uh, Greek language where they Mm. thought that the light of stars is so white that it looks like milk. Yeah. So it really does have a connection, like the actual milk and Milky Way, the galaxy. And this connection, I kind of like combine in this concert. So it's like about space. It has some spatial effects. And then it's it's about like this journey that begins when the baby is born and then Mm. carries on the whole life. And, you know, maybe some something of, like, mother's love to her children derives from this connection that has been, like, so, you know, so natural, so instinctive and, like, like deriving from body.
0: Yeah. So your sort of maternal identity really feeds your musical...
1: Yeah, I have to say that this, like... Uh, I was afraid first to like go on to this kind of subject. I was asking my husband, like, are they too trivial? Like, is it too like like everyday life? But then I thought that, well, it's like the biggest miracle of life for like, uh, that maybe music hasn't been written of it because it was mostly men writing music for these mm. past centuries.
0: Yeah,
1: And I remember like when this first like work, Midnights and Variations, which was premiered in, in the Proms in London, uh, just like one year before the pandemic broke, and it was BBC Phil and John John Sturges conducting them, and it was really, mm-hmm. like it, it came out really big and effective. And then I remember, like I can't remember the name of the critic, but in Times was it? Nail? Well, anyhow, Times critic, like picked up that. That some, somebody has written about the miracle of birth, mm. like a welcome yeah. dawn came to this subject. And I thought that, oh, yes, it is a dawn for this subject. Or is it really? Like, like I, I thought that it's incredible that something which is so essential, like hasn't been talked about in classical music. In literature, it has been talked for like now some decades.
2: I'm always interested because, um, you know, people say if you play music to a baby when it's inside mum, mm. it has calming Im- impact, it has positive impact. How, how, how do your children react to your, to your music? Do they, do, they, do they listen to it? Do they hear it around? Them? Do they just assume it's normal or do they, do they react hmm. in some way?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. They have been hearing some of it because uh, they have been in the orchestra rehearsals. You know, they are too small for coming into concerts yet, but they have been looking from the television and, like, listening from the radio. And they are quite, like, interested in that. It really... You can say that it speaks to to them somehow. Like, but I'm not sure, like, what is the exact point, how old they are when they realise that it's actually their mother who has been, like, composing it. Mm. Like, they're mostly used to this, like, that, okay... Mommy goes now to the workroom, and the (laughs) door is closed. Sorry. (laughs) You know, that happens.
0: I mean, I think it's really interesting that uh, Ring of Fire and Love is one of your most successful pieces, most successful recent pieces, really, because there was a day, wasn't there, when it was performed in three different places on the same day. And
2: Mm. uh, did you go to any of them? How how did that come about? (laughs) Why why was it in three places on the same day?
1: Oh, yes, I really don't know. But it, it has had some, like, maybe... Twenty performances during yeah. the season, but like yet I think it's quite a coincidence that it it's on the same night, like in three mm. different countries. I, I was actually in one of them. I was in Reykjavik.
0: Oh, how lovely!
1: Yeah, and the and the boy who uh, who was like inspiration for this this work, this particular work, was there with me.
0: Well, I'm quite interested in the. Um process of your writing process Uti you know you're balancing being a parent of three young boys do you have particular times of day where you write music or is it when you can what tell us about your writing process
1: Mm. well well now they are a bit older you know none of them is baby but Mm. like many of these these works that we just talked about like I think like one special thing, at least for me, is that that I have really started composing quite quite quickly after they were born. You know, because it's not mm-hmm. something that you have to do for eight hours per day. You sure. can like compose for like even 15 minutes and get forward and then carry on from there on. So like for example, this ring of fire and love, like I, I began when when uh Our middle boy was like five weeks. And I think at that point, you know, you are quite open still from Mm. all that what has happened. And I think that shows in the music. Yeah. But I would say that now my working uh, is much more regular than when, like, there was a five-week-old baby that I was living with, you know. Like I work in in circles in that way that first I am, like might have just an emotion or idea or some kind of like atmosphere in my head. That's usually first thing that comes, atmosphere. And then I start finding like um, some sounds for that, maybe some like groups of instruments that I might use for that sound and like and the color comes comes in Mm. at the early stage and I I might like write some drafts but then after that process I usually like draft from the beginning to the end the material somehow Mm -hmm. and Mm. then after that I go to the computer and write, write it there and think that how this material would be notated in the most reasonable way so that it comes out in the best possible way. And then after that round, I go back and orchestrate it all. And that that process usually takes the longest. Mm. And then after that I go it then over and like in detail and check that all the things are there, you know, there's yeah. so many things that you have to check that are in place. sardinos, yeah. you know, sort of ponticellos. There's so many And have
2: you carved out a part of the day to work or do you just find gaps when you can or do you are you a morning person
1: Mm. person? well yeah I would say that I mostly like working in the in the mornings and mid day in the afternoons usually I like come out of my compositional energy and I do other things you know we have a nanny at home who is coming every day to take care of the boys otherwise it would be like quite difficult now Mm. especially and when when the boys were younger also my husband uh, was taking lots of responsibility of them so like I could carry on breastfeeding for example like without interruption because like I, I was working while the babies were sleeping or and sometimes really like I get ideas in the nights as well. Like, I have quite lively imagination for dreams, for example. Mm. And uh, both this Milky Ways, the English horn concert, and this The Ring of Fire and Love, like the ending in the both of the works, are like inspired by the same dream that I saw on the second night of the hospital after our second boy was born, where I was like, Um, floating in space like and all of a sudden like I was looking uh, from this telescope and saw the hologram of the boy who was just born of his face and all of a sudden I wasn't sure if that was the face of the newborn or was it my own very own face you know, this kind mm. of identity crisis. Like two days ago, you were just one body and now you are two bodies and you are not anymore sure if you are the baby or, you, or the mother. And when I woke up, like, like it took me some, you know, seconds to like, where's the baby? Where's the baby? And who am I? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, those moments when you have been in such big, like, uh, and so basic experiences of like human life, or you know, any animals' life. Too, we are hum- humans are animals in in that perspective, and that has been inspiration for these ed- endings for the both of the pieces.
2: And did, did, when you had that dream, did you have to write something down very quickly? Because I I often have dreams, and then about half an hour later, I just can't remember anything I've.
1: Had this very involved dream about? No, you, you know, I didn't write anything there, but the atmosphere was so clear. Ah, well. And then when I came back, like when when he was about five weeks, to this atmosphere, it was still there, like, like really untouched, and I could find it. And it I think I transferred it quite well to this this music. And it we just recorded it when it finished Eraso, and they were all saying that it's just magical. Like when all the tempos are just right, like it's. But sometimes dreams can be really effective. I think.
2: Yeah, there's a famous Um. example. Um, Paul McCartney from the Beatles. Mm. He he dreamt the song Yesterday, which was arguably is the most the most covered song of all time. No song has been recorded by more people. and he woke up with this completely formed melody, the complete song in his head. So he was convinced he, it was somebody else's song. So he, mm. he went around sort of playing it to people, expecting them to go, oh, that's by so-and-so. And after about two or three months of playing it to people, he realised he'd written it. And it had just <laughs> absolutely fully formed, landed in yeah. his head. And I, I get the impression it was exciting, but, but quite scary. <laughs> yes, I hadn't consciously
1: made it. <laughs> yeah, I, was be, I would be really scared if I were to wake up with, like, a whole orchestra work de- with all the details in my head, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say.
0: be quite convenient, though.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <You know. laughs>
0: Talking of um, writing music and th- your journey as a composer, Uti, I, I, what drew you to the jazz idiom? You know, because you spent some time conducting and composing in that idiom with some of the, the great jazz orchestras of the world. What,
1: what pulled you mm. to that place? Oh, yes. Well, that's that's a funny thing because, you know, in Emi, um, in my hometown, when I was playing the piano, that was my main instrument. I played a bit of cello, and clarinet, but but it was the piano, oh. which I was, it was my main instrument. you know, I couldn't get to the orchestra. That was such a shame for pianists. Mm-hmm. But they took me to the big band, to the ah, Romanimi okay. big band. And, like, somehow this, like, writing for larger un- ensembles was written in my DNA or something, because mm-hmm. I, like, it didn't take like more than two months when I was already writing for them. I asked like, could you please try this out (laughs) just once? (laughs) And like that path led uh, forward so that I ended up studying jazz composition in Sibelius Academy for like, what, five, seven years. And I graduated from there as well.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And... At some point, I felt that the possibilities that jazz orchestra offered, like, were more to the rhythm than to the structure, and especially with the color, I thought that it was quite like captivating. Mm-hmm. Yes, but I would say that like the most important thing for me in jazz was like when I get to study um, in in the United States with Ron Miller. Like who has created this theory of like modes, and like how how it affects, or like how what's the connection with like color in the modes, and I I thought that was so interesting for me. Like he he said that this mode is darker than this, and like I was comparing with my system, and like it really I really learned a lot. From there, it's something that I still use even in my like classical orchestra pieces. This kind of thinking.
2: When you when you see music as colours, are, are the are the deeper notes darker colours, and the lighter notes lighter colours? Is it as simple as that, or is that?
1: They, of course, they are yes. But I'm talking about harmony when I think about these colours, like like certain modes are darker in color than the others but of course i think like you know that's kind of things too did you have jazz in your in your sort
2: of background as you were growing up or is that something you came to as you began working
1: in that area well, I, I, th- I would say that this Romani Big Band was my gate to there. Like people were listening to different jazz albums and then I started checking out some Miles Davis and I especially like Elevens, who mm-hmm. was a
0: master of color. In terms of. Going from the, the colourful tapestry, if you like, of the jazz orchestra to the different colours of the symphony orchestra, do you find that you draw on both of those experiences? So when you're writing your next piece for symphony orchestra, you don't do you define between those, or is it does it just all come from the same pot for you?
1: Well, let's say that when I then started to dream about writing for a symphony orchestra. Mm You know, like after moving to Helsinki, I had this access to like orchestra concerts and I could go to the opera and I started dreaming about that. Like one day I would like to compose for this, this, this kind of like ensembles, like it felt like, like endless opportunities would be there. And I, in a way, I still feel like there, there's endless opportunities because like string instruments, they have like so much less lim- like limitations than the winds, like let alone the percussion ensemble. Like it's really like a magic box what they can do there.
0: Yeah, it's, it absolutely is. And I think what I love about your music is it is is clearly your music. It's got your fingerprints all over it. It could not have been written by anyone else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love the way you use the human voice in your
1: work you.
0: It was really interesting to ask you about you're going to be the themed composer or are the themed composer for Finnish radio symphony orchestra and also, um, I guess, featured composer at the Kupo Festival. What does Mm -hmm. that mean for you? What's that bringing for you that is different?
1: You know, what's the opportunity there for you? Mm. Well, Um, it has been really nice to be like present now in Helsinki because I feel like, like my career started like, well, it started in Lapland and with Lapland chain Orchestra, I, I did this Earth Springs Daughter, which was supposed to be 10 minutes. Like after, after that, like many things appeared not from Finland, like, Mm Like I came to proms and then I started working with Swedish and like Canadian and like different orchestras. And it took actually many years before I had time to write for the Finnish radio orchestra then. But it has been really nice to come there because Helsinki was my home for 10 years. And like it's fantastic orchestra. It's really a top Mm. orchestra of Europe. So it has been really nice in, in a way to be at like present at my home mm. and it feels different than visiting elsewhere. And, and I suppose
0: having an association gives you the opportunity, I think maybe three or four concerts with your music in it. And mm. did
1: they premiere Milky Ways? Yes, Was they that? do the yeah. premiere, yeah. And they record all those works. It will come out as an album next February. Oh, wow. That's brilliant. Yes, but I would say that, yes, my home orchestra is this Lapland chamber. And mm. I actually have a world premiere with them, too. I'm just finishing a uh, chamber concert for them called Polar Pearls, And it's like a, as its name, it's like a, you know, a chain of pearls, like little, and that will be in, in first days of June with your stool gods.
2: Like... Are, are there people that you still know in the, in the Lapland orchestra?
1: Oh, yes. Yes, I know my them friends. all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like... Well, I'm their they they are my unofficial like home orchestra and I'm their composer, you know. Maybe it will be official someday. Yeah. <laughs> but Jon Stuhlgold's their like uh artistic direct uh director. Mm. And he he's actually BBC feels chief conductor now too. Yeah. Like his way of forming music is somehow very close to my my thinking. Like when I work with Jon. We don't need to talk much because he, he always knows what I mean before without I even say that. So oh, it has been really really nice relationship, like doing things with him and his orchestras.
0: I think to have a conductor that gets immediately what you're communicating through hmm. your score is I imagine one of the most special experiences.
1: Yes. That that has been very, very important, crucial. Yeah, and the idea that it's
0: just it's something between the two of you. You're at the first rehearsal of a a brand new piece that no one's ever heard. The composer's not even heard it for the first time with the orchestra, you know, and and the composer has very little to say. I think that is a golden moment in our business. Isn't it brilliant? I mean, it just makes me so joyful when that happens. And uh, I think John is such a great champion of you and your music because of that.
1: Mm. I'm really happy you say this. Sometimes, like, there's a moment, like when John says, like, when he gets a new score from me, that, oh, this is going to be brilliant. And then Mm. the next time we talk is like after the first rehearsal or so. But he picks it up, everything from the score, and he says that that it's all there, and it is. Mm. So, it is a language.
0: The answer to this is yes or no. I think for every composer, when you have you do you have a habit of going back to a piece once you've heard it and changing things, or do you does it tend mm-hmm. to be the case that you know what you've spent a painstaking time detailing every nuance? that actually you're pretty happy with how things go?
1: Well, I would say that if there's no surprises at all, like you have to ask yourself the question, have I been adventurous enough? So usually I do some corrections, yes. Mm. like, But not like thousands of them, not hundreds, but maybe Mm -hmm. some tens, like... And something we might change, some sort is better than if it's, or some like balanced thing. But maybe it comes from experience that you, like, you know, it's not like huge changes. Yeah. And sometimes I also think that, okay, this piece was like this and I have now a completely other vision, but that would be mm. the next piece.
0: That's the publisher's dream, of course, isn't it? That there's not too much tinkering after the show. Marvellous. Are your senses consistently working in a musical way?
1: In a way, they are. Like, a classical moment is when I open, you know, the refrigerator in, in like, grocery store, you know, where they have all these, like, milks and yards and that. And you hear this like really special atmosphere Mm -hmm. inside the Mm -hmm. refrigerator, you know, that's always, I think that, okay, I should stay here someday for one hour and listen to this and then write something about it. But then many times, you know, when I go home, like Mm. the boys compete about my attention Mm -hmm. and like, there will be no moment when I have, like one second to think about my music anymore. But I think that's really refreshing. And I think that's for many, like really great men artists, it has has been like really important balancing force that they have a family, but which brings something totally else to their life than their career.
2: Not just artists.
1: Well, yes, you could say, yes. MM: I think men need that.: <laughs> mm. You mm. get to this moment where they, the other people can't care less what you do when you are working. They are just they just want to be with you and do things together, whatever mm. that is. Read a book or. And until they
2: stop, they hit about 13 or 14, and they don't, And that's the point you get a dog.
1: Oh, yes.
2: (laughs) Because they are pleased to see you.
1: (laughs) Mm.
0: Uti, in terms of your inspiration, you know, nature, being a mother, reading, have you got favourite people that you might want to collaborate from different art forms, like a writer or a visual artist or...? You know, how would you choose collaborations?
1: Well, one thing that really interests me is the, like, the contemporary circus. Ooh. Like, I have been dreaming that I could write, um, like, some music where there would be an aerial acrobat in the concert mm. hall, you know, because concert halls are so, so, like, high. So this rope or this whatever they would be, like, needing for, like their flies, like they could be really long and it could be really effective. And, you know, I once uh, saw in Berlin in their, uh, in one of the biggest church, Church mm. of ju- Judgment, I think, um, it was Bach's Christmas Oratorium and they had this uh, aerial acrobat. And i I remember i was drawing pictures of that afterwards and thinking that this is really really inspiring it should be done more but of course like i don't know what would like uh, bbc orchestras think if i would suggest as a soloist (laughs) an aerial acrobat it would be a totally uh, new opening but
2: i think it would be a great great opportunity i think it sounds a fantastic idea i think I yeah, think we should. You should do that, Uti. Um, I, I think. I think we we're coming to the end of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to us. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I think you are our most northern correspondent that, that we've spoken to. I see. Um, so thank you very much. Lovely to meet you, and I hope yes. to, to see you soon. And good luck. Thank
1: you for having me. Um, we'll see in London soon.
0: Yeah, Yeah, very much looking forward to that, Uti. And uh, have a lovely family weekend. Thank you so much. This episode of Composing Myself has been brought to you by
2: Wise Music Group. Thanks for listening.